Okay, turn with me to Matthew 5, and we are looking at verses 31 and 32. We began looking at this last week, and we will continue this week, and I'm sure into the future for another week or two. Uh, it, let me read the text again. It says, it was said, this is Jesus speaking, it was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. As we said last week, among evangelicals in various churches and denominations, there has often been wide disagreement over what the Bible teaches about divorce. But God is very clear in the Bible about this issue. He, the confusion comes when you try to fit God's standard into the lack of standards of our own society. Uh, the difficulty is not with God, the difficulty is with man. And we need to understand that from the very beginning. Uh, and as I told you, I don't think we would do justice to the issue of divorce and remarriage by simply dealing with what Jesus says here in these two verses. Uh, so we have to look at the rest of Scripture also uh, so that we can get a, a much more complete view. Uh, we know that the harmful effects of divorce on children and parents and the family and society as a whole are staggering and certainly are more than enough to cause us to be concerned about the problem. But the supreme tragedy of divorce is that it violates God's word. We, we don't say that divorce is wrong because of what it does to individuals, families, and society. It's wrong because God says it's wrong. Uh, and I want us to see what God has to say. As I said last week, uh, I state right up front that I hate divorce, and it's okay to say that because in Malachi 2.16, God says I hate divorce. Um, and while I hate divorce for what it does to families and individuals, and society, my primary reason for hating it is because in most cases, divorce is a violation of the Word of God, and that's the important issue. Now, in trying to discover what the Bible really says, we find ourselves exactly where the Pharisees were in Matthew 5.31. They had developed an erroneous view of divorce and remarriage, and Jesus confronts them with their error and sets the record straight. Now let me set the context again. Jesus is unmasking the sins of the Pharisees and unmasking their hypocrisy. They had dragged God down to their level, invented their own code of ethics, and then to make matters worse, they misinterpreted the Bible to fit their own view. And they decided that you ought to be able to dump your wife whenever you wanted to, for whatever reason you wanted to. And so you ought to be able to get a divorce whenever you got the whim and the will to do it. Uh, so they twisted the scripture to fit that view. And we went back last time and we looked at in Genesis 2, we find God made Adam and Eve and he brings Eve to Adam and Adam sees his wife, meets her in verses 23 and 24 of Genesis 2, say, the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So marriage, as God designed it, is to be the perfect welding of 
two people together into one. They're not just two anymore, they are one. And if husbands and wives would realize that this is God's definition of marriage, they would realize that a divorce is, as I said last week, sort of like a man cutting off his leg because he's got a splinter in his toe. Uh, when God brings a man and woman together, it is to be a permanent relationship. That's why Matthew 19, 6 says what, therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And he says in Matthew 19, 8, that from the beginning, that is when God established marriage back in the garden, divorce was not a part of his plan for marriage. And yet we have people today who enter into marriage with the idea that if it doesn't work, we'll just end it. And so, but if we see marriage the way God sees it, we know that it is a monogamous, lifelong oneness that God has ordained. God considered marriage to be so sacred that any violation of that marriage union was so serious that the penalty for it was death. Uh, Leviticus 20 verse 10 says, If there is a man who commits adultery with another man's wife, one who commits adultery with his friend's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. You say, well, why don't we execute adulterers today? As I told you last week, but it's not because God's standards have changed. Uh, they haven't. But we live in a different dispensation with how God administers and carries out his justice. The church is not the nation of Israel. Uh, in the Old Testament, God set his standards for how his chosen people, the ethnic nation of Israel, was to carry out his law. But today we're in a different dispensation and God's means for carrying out discipline on his children who make up his church is by means of church discipline. So churches and their leadership are responsible to carry out church discipline on cases of adultery that arise in their midst. Those churches and pastors who are unwilling to do that will have to answer to the Lord for their failure to obey his word in that regard. Uh, and God will execute his justice on the unrighteous, unregenerate adulterers when he returns. Now, in the word, there's a difference with how God deals with various sexual sins. As you know, adultery is sexual activity with a married person. Uh, fornication is sexual activity not involving a married person. Now, fornication is still an evil sin. Uh, illicit sexual relationships apart from marriage involving two single people who aren't married is still a sin and it is defiling and evil. Uh, but do you know what the Old Testament, or did you know that the Old Testament did not require the death penalty for fornication? Uh, for fornication, there was a punishment less than the death penalty. Uh, in Deuteronomy 22, verses 28 and 29, it says, If a man finds a girl who is a virgin who is not engaged and seizes her and lies with her, and they're discovered, then the man who lay with her shall give to the girl's father 50 shekels of silver, and she shall become his wife because he has violated her. He cannot divorce her all his days. Uh, so the guy had to pay a dowry price to the girl's father and marry her for life. And in Leviticus 19.20, it says that the man who had sex with an engaged but yet unmarried woman was to be punished. And the Jewish tradition was that the punishment was to be a scourging. So when there wasn't a, re when there wasn't a marriage involved, there was a scourging. But when you defiled a marriage, it was death by stoning. 
so this gives us some insight into how God feels about marriage. Uh, in fact, God has such a high view of marriage that in the last of the Ten Commandments, he said, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Uh, and that tells us that, to even, that even for a married person, to desire a partner, another, a different partner, was so evil that it was one of the ten major sins. And by the way, Jesus pointed it out back in verse 28 where he says, if anybody looks on a woman to lust after her, he committed adultery in his heart. Uh, that, that it's so serious that it's not only is it forbidden to engage in, it's forbidden to even think about. Uh, why? Because God has such a high view of marriage as a monogamous, lifelong, permanent relationship between a man and a and his wife, uh, and that's the way it is to be. So don't even think in those terms. Uh, in Leviticus 18:18, 18, 18, God went a step further. He prohibited polygamy. Uh, you're not only you're only allowed to have one partner. That's it. And all through Leviticus 18, he prohibits all other various kinds of other sexual relationships. Now, the point of all of this is to show you beyond a shadow of a doubt that God established marriage as a spiritual, sexual, social union for one man and one woman, never to be violated in deed and never to be violated in thought. And he condemned in a wholesale manner every violation of it and even in every encouragement to violate it. Uh, and that's what... Jesus says, when you get to the New Testament, uh, in Matthew 9, 19, 8, he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. Divorce was never God's intention. There is no place in the Bible where divorce is ever commanded. Uh, and it was at this point where the scribes and the Pharisees were out of line. Uh, in verse 7 of uh, Matthew 19, they had said to Jesus, why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? See, Moses never commanded that. Uh, that's how twisted they were. Uh, Jesus says, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, but never did he command it. And we'll see that distinction further as we move along in our study. In Mark 10, verses 5 to 9, Jesus says essentially the same thing. He says, but Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So I'm just trying to show you God's original intention. So the first truth, the first reality we must be committed to is the uniqueness and permanence of marriage. Two becoming one for life, never violating that oneness in thought or in deed. Now to solidify in your mind the absoluteness of this principle, I want you to go to another Old Testament passage. It's Malachi 2. Malachi 2 and in this text, God reiterates his view of marriage and divorce. As you read through Malachi, what you see 
is that God indicts the people of Israel for their various sins, but they never agree that God is right. He says, you did such and such. And they say, what do you mean that we did that? Uh, how can you say that? Uh, they, they sound like a bunch of 12-year-old kids. Uh, they, they always have an excuse. When did we ever do that? Uh, what do you mean we did that? Uh, and that's essentially what they say here. Uh, let's begin in verse 13. Malachi 2. Uh, this is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and with groanings, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. In other words, you come to the Lord's altar acting so religious and pious, and you weep and cry and act like you're repentant. Uh, but you know what? God doesn't even accept your offering. He isn't interested in your worship. Verse 14, yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. He says, you want to know why God doesn't hear you? You want to know why God doesn't want your worship? Because you don't do right by your wife. Uh, what had they done? They had divorced their Jewish wives and married pagan women. Uh, God was displeased with them because they had divorced them and married these foreign women and, and their wives had been rejected after years of faithfulness. Uh, he, it says, she is your companion. Uh, that's a word that's often used in the Old Testament for a close friend. This is the only place it's ever used for a wife. Uh, but it does indicate that your wife should be your closest friend. Uh, and you've done treacherously against her. And then you come to verse 15. And scholars tell us this is one of the most difficult verses to translate in the whole Bible. Uh, the Hebrew here is very obscure, but I think the English Standard Version, the ESV, gives us the best understanding of the meaning. Uh, let me see if I can explain the verse to you. The first part of the verse in the ESV says, Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? What he's saying is, when God made you and your wife one in marriage, he did so by action of the Holy Spirit. You became one flesh, and those who were one flesh don't deal treacherously with their wives. After all, they're one flesh with you by the Spirit of God. And then the next line, and what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. You see, the Jews knew that one of the reasons God gave marriage was to produce a godly line, right? Uh, Deuteronomy 6.5 gave them the great Shema, in, uh, which was to be passed on from generation to generation. And he's saying, if you divorce your wife, you're obviously not led of the Spirit. And second, what you're doing is going to produce, uh, is not going to, uh, to produce a godly seed if you're married to a pagan woman. Uh, and then finally, the verse says, so guard yourselves in your spirit, and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. Now the result is in verse 16. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. Now, I think you understand the phrase, I hate divorce. But what does it mean that God hates the man who covers his garment with wrong? Uh, it's a figurative expression for gross sin. Uh, it's like a man who murders someone and the blood of his victim is splattered all over his clothes. Uh, that's exactly what God is saying. 
He is saying that when you divorce your wife, you have a sin-splattered garment. God says, I hate divorce. Why? Because the one who does it splatters his garments with the blood of his victim. Uh, so the sin of divorce is really laid on the one who does it. And then at the end of verse 16, he says, so take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. You see what this verse is saying? Divorce is sin and God hates it. Now you may be the victim of someone else's evil and God will understand, but God hates divorce all the way around. If there's had never been a fall, there would have never been a curse. If there had never been a curse, there would never have been a divorce. Uh, so we can say divorce is the result of sin, and is, which is the result of the fall, which is all part of the curse. So therefore, God hates divorce. Now you might wonder, well, if God hates divorce so much, how did it get to be so prevalent? Well, let's go back to Genesis 3. In Genesis 3.16, let's turn back there and look. Uh, men and women have sinned, and now because they have fallen into sin, marriage is going to be cursed just like every other human relationship. You're going to have trouble because you're going to have two vile sinners separated from God. So here comes the curse to the woman for sinning in verse 16, Genesis 3. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. And then the curse for the man in verse 17. Then to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles shall grow for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now there are several elements to the curse. Separation from God, separation between man and woman, and a separation between man and nature. But look at the end of verse 16. It says... God speaking to the wife, to Eve, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. And in that one statement, you have the basic problem in marriage, which is that you have two sinners who have been cursed by God trying to get along. Uh, God's or design originally was an indivisible union. That's the way it was from the beginning. God's design was that the two of them would become one and go through all of life together. But when sin entered into the human race, it resulted in terrible conflict in marriage. The marriage ideal was shattered. Chaos entered the home. Uh, divorce inevitably becomes the result. Now, prior to the fall, marriage was pure bliss. Uh, the man was the head. The woman was the helpmeet. Uh, the man's headship was a loving, caring uh, provision of understanding. The woman's role as his helpmeet was that of a loving, caring submissiveness to the one who was given as her leader. It was beautiful. Her heart was totally dedicated and devoted to him, and his heart was totally devoted to her. Uh, and according to Genesis 1.28, they ruled over creation together. But that ended when they fell. And here's what happened. Verse 16. 
what we just read. Your desire will be for your husband. He will rule over you. The Hebrew word translated rule means to rule or to reign, to have dominion over. It means to be set in an elevated position or an elevated office. What happened was that in the fall, man's rule changed from being a soft, loving, caring leadership to being a kind of rule, uh, rule that involved authority and dominance. Uh, it is a different word, but a much stronger concept of domination than the word for rule in Genesis 1.28. Uh, a new dimension of his rule came about, and the woman was then made immediately subordinate to the man. People say there's too much male chauvinism in the world. Men are so misogynistic. This is why, because of the curse. Uh, because woman led in the sin, God set man over her to control her, to subdue her, as it were, to be her head. And frankly, without Jesus Christ, man's headship can be very abusive. Sinful man can be very chauvinistic. Uh, it is only by the power of Christ, only by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit, can the right kind of headship be restored. That's the meaning of Ephesians 5.25, where the husbands are told to love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Only in Christ will a man treat a woman like he ought to. Apart from that, there will be oppressiveness. On the other hand, God goes on in Genesis 3.16 to say to the woman, yet your desire will be for your husband. Now, what does that mean? Now, some commentators have said that even though the husband will rule over his wife, she will still desire him physically and emotionally. The problem with that thinking is that it just isn't true. Uh, the, of the two in the marriage, the man has the stronger sex drive, and women often don't desire the headship of a man at all. Uh, in fact, many times they despise it. So that's not at all what it means. Keep in mind the context. This is part of the curse. Desiring her husband physically and emotionally isn't a curse. That's a blessing. Uh, so what does this mean? Well, this Hebrew word is used only one other time in the Pentateuch, and that's 15 verses later in chapter 4, verse 7. It is the story of Cain's murder of Abel. And when God confronts Cain, one of the things he says to Cain is sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. The word master in my New American Standard is the same Hebrew word as rule back in chapter 3, verse 16. And it's the very same parallel construction in both verses. Your desire will be for your husband. He will rule over you. It's desires for you. You will you must master it. Uh, sin desired Cain, but he had to rule over it. In other words, God told Cain, sin desires to dominate you, but you will have to suppress it. That's exactly what the curse was. The curse was that woman would desire to usurp the role of man and take the authority and man would suppress her. Uh, and so from Genesis 3.16 on, you have the battle of the sexes. Uh, why is there a woman's liberation movement? Well, there has been since Genesis 3.16. Uh, why is there male chauvinism? There has been since Genesis 3.16.
Uh, so woman desires to control man just like sin desired to control Cain. When Adam let Eve lead him into sin, there is a sense in which God said, Adam, since you let her take control and lead you into this sin, she is going to continue to try to usurp your authority throughout the rest of history. That's why we have problems. In Eve's sin, she took over the leadership, and that became the sinful tendency of woman ever since. In Adam's sin, he abandoned his leadership, and that he has to struggle to maintain that authority throughout the rest of time that man lives on the earth. He has to struggle with that. So marital conflict exists all around us because of the curse, and it is the king of the mountain in most homes, and people fight it one way or another. Now, what does it lead to? Divorce. And so naturally, Moses says, because of the hardness of your heart, we have to face the fact that divorce is a reality. It doesn't change God's view. It doesn't change how God feels. It's part of the curse. It's part of sin. And God hates the curse. God hates sin. And God hates divorce. It is a symptom of man's vile sinfulness. It hurts and does irreparable damage to everyone involved, but most of all, it goes against God who never designed divorce to be a part of human life. Now the question, does the rest of Scripture uphold this same perspective? That's the question. And people say, what about the exception clause in Matthew 5? Uh, what about the exception clause in Matthew 19? What about the exception in 1 Corinthians 7? Does the rest of the Bible uphold this view? That's what we want to see. So let's begin by seeing, first of all, what the scribes and Pharisees taught. Look at Matthew 5.31. Jesus says, It was said, Whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Now, as you know by now, Jesus is confronting the hypocritical religion of the Pharisees and the scribes and the people who followed their teaching. They believed they're righteous enough to enter the kingdom because they kept certain laws. But the Lord is showing them that the laws they kept were inadequate. And here in verse 31, he says, you make sure that when you divorce your wife that you get the legal paperwork done. And I, but I'm telling you, you shouldn't even divorce your wife. Uh, that's the point. In other words, he's ripping their cloak of self-righteousness off of them. He's stripping them bare of their system of religion by which they had convinced themselves that they were clothed in the robes of the kingdom. Now, is this an Old Testament quote? No. That was their rabbinic tradition. That's what they, it, it, this is what they had been taught. Uh, the word translated their sins away is literally translated to release, to let go. It's, it was the common term meaning divorce. Uh, a divorce was a releasing of one's wife. Uh, so it's saying whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. And under Jewish law, Women didn't have the right to divorce their husband, nor could she prevent or refuse a divorce. Uh, it was entirely a man's prerogative, and he could do it for almost any reason. Now, there were two different schools of rabbinical thought about divorce, 
And the one that was dominant in Jesus' time was that you could divorce your wife for any reason. It didn't matter what it was. If she burned the bagels or uh, put too much salt in the grits uh, or she didn't get along with her mother-in-law or she went to the market without a veil or you simply found a prettier girl or whatever it might be, you could just divorce her. And when you did that, their view was just be sure you get the paperwork right. Uh, that's all. That was their view. Make sure you write her a certificate of divorce. You see, they're just trying to make sure they complied with the legal requirement that they thought was taught in Deuteronomy 24. Uh, you could get a divorce for any reason you wanted. And so Jesus wants to show them that this isn't what the Bible teaches at all. So let's go back to Deuteronomy 24, 1-4, which is the only place in the Old Testament that they went to as a source for the subject of divorce. Deuteronomy 24, 1-4. Here's what it says. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife. And if the latter husband turns against her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who she sent away, is not allowed to take her again to be his wife, since she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. Now, that's the text. And the problem is, what does it mean? <laughs> you know, uh, it's very crucial to understand it because it was the basis of the scribes and Pharisees' teaching. It has, been, it has been misinterpreted by the Jews. It had been misinterpreted by the Christians. And everybody else has been confused about it. Now remember this. From the beginning, God hates divorce. So you're not going to find a section in the Bible where God says, now if you find something wrong with your wife, write her a bill of divorce. Uh, I mean, that would be totally inconsistent with what God says elsewhere. Uh, that would not match up with Malachi 2. It would not match up with the book of Hosea, in which God presents the marriage of Hosea and Gomer as permanent, even though Gomer was a prostitute. Um, it would not match up with Genesis 2, 23 and 24. And it would not match up with Matthew 19 or Mark 10. So we've got to look at it from another angle, because God hates divorce. That's the bottom line. So what then is Moses doing with this certificate of divorce here in Deuteronomy 24? And why did Jesus mention in Matthew 19 that Moses gave a certificate of divorce? Well, let me say up front that the focus of this passage is not the question of whether or not divorce is permitted. It does not provide for divorce, much less command it. Uh, rather, it is a statement of a very narrow, specific law that was given to deal with a matter of adultery. It shows how improper divorce leads to adultery, which results in defilement. Un, uh, through Moses, God recognized and permitted divorce under certain circumstances when it was 
accompanied by a certificate, but he did not thereby condone or command divorce. God's permission for divorce was but another accommodation of his grace to human sin. Let me show you that in Matthew 19. Keep, keep your place there. We'll eventually get back to Deuteronomy. Uh, over in Matthew 19, Jesus is speaking about the unity of one in marriage. He says in verse 6, What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So the Pharisees asked him, Why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? Here's Jesus' reply in verse 8. He said to them, Because of the hardness of your heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it has not been this way. In other words, it was not a command. It was simply permission based on the hardness of your sinful hearts. That's a big difference. Nowhere in Scripture does God command anyone to get a divorce. God's design from the beginning was no divorce. He hated it. There, however, God knew that in a cursed world where the sin of adultery existed, divorce would be a reality. And so God simply permitted that when divorce happened, there had to be certain things that followed to ensure what would come about as a result. God regulated the consequence of divorce. Nowhere will you find any page in the Bible of God condoning or commanding divorce. It was never has a divine sanction. It's just that God knows it exists and Jesus recognized that it, it recognized that it exists. It's basically a socio-political feature to give a certificate of divorce to regulate the inevitable results. There had to be some legal process because marriage was a legal contract. And so when men were dumping their wives and becoming adulterous, and when the innocent wife was just turned loose, they could make no claim for anything. No one would know what the circumstances were. They would not be able to explain their situation. And so to ease that and to regulate future behavior, there was a certificate of divorce. Now, what was its purpose? It was a testimonial to the woman of her freedom from the marital obligation to the husband who divorced her. In the bill of divorcement was a statement that the woman was set free by the man so that she, couldn't, she wouldn't be accused of being a prostitute or she wouldn't be accused of having forsaken her home or have run off from her husband. Secondly, the certificate of divorce was evidence for a potential new husband of her legal freedom to remarry. And by the way, in every passage that talks about divorce, Remarriage is always presumed. It is assumed in Deuteronomy. It's assumed in Matthew 5. It's assumed in Matthew 19. It's always assumed that when someone is divorced, they're going to remarry. And so the certificate of divorce gave a legal freedom to remarry. Third, it's a protection for a woman's reputation from slander. That's really what it was for. Uh, to show that she hadn't forsaken her husband, so that she was free to remarry as far as her husband was concerned and to show that she was not slandered as a prostitute. Now, as far as God was concerned, such a certificate of divorce was only legitimate in one case, and that was the case of adultery. But listen, that is not to say that it was necessary or commanded. When Hosea's wife Gomer became an adulterous prostitute, did he divorce her? No. In fact, his marriage, the whole purpose of the book of Hosea is to show that 
his marriage was a picture of God's relationship to the nation of Israel. When the nation of Israel was adulterous in its relationship with God and went out chasing after other gods, did he divorce the nation of Israel? No. No, he remained faithful to the nation even when it prostituted itself with other gods. When Christ has an adulterous believer in his church, does he divorce that person so that they lose their salvation? No. Nor is it required that that be done in this case. Uh, but where there is adultery, Jesus recognizes and God recognizes that divorce will happen. It is never God's solution, but if both people would get right with God, the marriage would be right too. But it will happen that their divorce will come. Now, so then, what was Moses saying then in Deuteronomy 24? Uh, and you can go back there so that you can be looking at what I'm going to say. He gives an illustration here to point out the evil of divorce. He's not trying to provide for it. He's trying to prevent it. Here's the illustration. A man marries a wife, and it becomes to pass that he doesn't like her anymore because he's found some indecency in her. Now, the word indecency doesn't mean adultery. It refers to shameful exposure, indecent exposure. The root of the word in Hebrew is to be naked, to be improper, to be indecent. So something takes place and his wife is indecent or exposed. The Torah, interestingly, translates it obnoxious. <laughs> um, so he says, my wife is obnoxious, so I'm going to get rid of her. So next the text says, and he writes her a certificate of divorce. Now, there's a rather technical aspect to the grammar that needs to be understood here. If you have a conditional sentence, that is an if-then type of sentence, the first part of the, of the sentence, the if statement, is called the protasis. The then part of the statement is called the apotasis. Now, if you read this passage, when you read this passage, a lot of people try to stick both the protasis and the apotasis in verse 1. So here's how they read it. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that he finds no favor in his eye, or she finds no favor in his eyes because he's found some indecency in her, then he shall write a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. But that's not in the Hebrew. You don't find a then in the Hebrew until verse 4. Notice again what it says. Verse 1. When a man takes a wife and marries her and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand, sends her out of his house and she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife and if the latter husband turns against her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house or if the latter husband dies who took her to be his wife then her former husband who sent her away is not allowed to take her again to be his wife since she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. You see, everything in verses 1 through 3 are conditional clauses. 
They're all prodigies. You never get to the apodosis, the conclusion, until the end. And the conclusion is, when it's all said and done, she can't come back and marry her first husband because she's so defiled. Now, how did she get defiled? She, because she was divorced for something less than adultery. That's the whole point. That's exactly what Moses is teaching. There's only one legitimate cause for divorce, but even that is only a technicality when you compare it to the book of Hosea. So what this is simply doing is giving an illustration. Here's a man, he takes a wife, decides to get rid of his wife, decides to write her a certificate of divorce. She, he puts her out of the house. She goes and marries somebody else. And the latter man hates her and he gives her a divorce. And he sticks a certificate in her hand and he sends her out of his house. Or else if she, he dies, she can't go back and remarry her first husband. Why? Because she's been defiled. How did she get defiled? She got defiled by consummating a new union when she had no grounds to get out of the first one. And you can't marry someone who's been defiled. Now, what Moses is trying to say is, don't marry somebody who has been defiled by adultery. He's not advocating divorce. What he says is that there's only one basic grounds for divorce, and that is adultery. And if a man turns a woman loose for anything less than that, any other kind of uncleanness in his own eyes, he will create an adulterous situation. He will defile the woman and he can never take her back because she is a defiled person. That's what he's saying. The Hebrew literally means she's disqualified. Now that is precisely what Moses is teaching and that's exactly what Jesus said. Now when you go back to Matthew 5, you find that what Jesus is saying is re-echoing what Moses said. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except for, reason, for the reason of unchastity makes her commit adultery and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. In other words, if you get a divorce on the wrong reasons, you add adultery to the sin of divorce. Now someone will inevitably come along and say, but what about Ezra 10, 3 through 5? A passage that some of you probably don't even know exists. <laughs> God ordered the Israelites to divorce their wives. What about that case? Well, it's true. In one unique case, God did order the Israelites to divorce their foreign wives. The nation had returned to the land from captivity, and while they were in captivity, many of them had married foreign wives. And God, through his priest Ezra, commanded them to divorce those wives because it was a violation of his law, and their presence threatened the existence of his covenant people because they would introduce false idol worship among the people. But in that single, but that single exception does not negate God's hatred of divorce. Ezra's call for divorce is an extreme historical example of following the lesser of two evils, and it applied only to the covenant nation of Israel in that one situation. God never advocates divorce, but he allows it in the case of adultery. In any other case, 
it leads to adultery beyond the sinful divorce. So the Lord and Moses were endeavoring to prevent the further sin of adultery being added when the inevitable remarriage occurs. Well, there you have the teachings of the scribes and Pharisees, and you have a reiteration of the teaching of Moses. And next, when we gather together again, we will come to what Jesus has to say about divorce. But I will stop here and find out if anyone has any questions. I, re I recognize that the section in Matthew 24 is a bit technical, but I hope you understand that don't stick a then statement. Don't stick the apotheosis in verse 1. It doesn't appear until verse 4. All the other, it, it has nothing to do really with God permitting divorce. It has to do with trying to prevent adultery. So, yes. Um, in verse 4, uh, the word then is supplied. Is that because it's obvious? It, it's obvious in the Hebrew. It's intended. Yes, it's Hebrew in the Hebrew. Yes. Yes. I don't mean to cause speculation or controversy, but what does Scripture say about a marriage where there's obvious physical We're going to get to that down the road. Okay. Um, and I would rather save that till then. Because okay. that, with five minutes to go, there's no way I can answer that thoroughly. So, okay. All right. We'll stop there. Let me, uh, Terry, would you close us in prayer while we uh, get ready to go? Father in heaven, we praise and thank you for your wonderful love for us and your mercy and kindness and generosity all shown forth through your son on the cross of Calvary. Thank you, Father, for choosing us to be part of your family. Thank you for the ministry of your Holy Spirit in our lives. We thank you, Father, for the clear teaching this morning and your better understanding of divorce and the significance of it and the importance and long-lasting nature of, of um, marriage. We praise you, Father, for